When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this week, Marcus, we have a very special guest, a man who not only did great things in both the radio and records business, he wrote about it all, too, and he wrote a book about one chapter of his life, I would say. Tom Petty and Me by John Scott tells the story of two guys who met not under the best circumstances <laughs> and later became lifelong friends. John Scott and Tom Petty. And John's our guest today on the podcast. Hey, guys. Hey, hey John, John. How are you? Nice picture. <laughs> you guys want to take his background off? If you want to leave it on, you're totally cool. We're cool with that. Okay. I love that photo. Yeah, that's, you know, probably, to me, one of the most iconic of all of his pictures. Uh, yeah, and I still don't know why he why he had bullets around his neck. I never asked him that question, which pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> that, hurt, you know, that hurt his career quite a bit, because a lot of radio stations didn't even listen to the record because of that cover. 30 seconds, ding. Wow. President of our record company, MCA, put on the Johnny Cougar album, 30 seconds, took it and tossed it in the trash can. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, it's like 30 seconds and your career's over. There are all kinds of horror stories like yeah. that. And uh, we're just kind of rolling right along. It's kind of like a running start on this episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll with John Scott, our guest he is uh, an amazing guy, an amazing person in his life, but also in the music business. And one of your um, unique credentials, I would say, is being uh, what you call a close personal friend of uh, Tom Petty and his whole gang. Yeah, we were pretty close <laughs> yeah. for about 40 years. And, uh, you know, I still have trouble even thinking that he's gone. Um like a lot of other Tom Petty fans, it's, the pet Tom Petty fans are just freaking amazing. And mm -hmm. I know they feel the same way I do that. We don't believe because he he's everywhere. I can walk into a store and hear a Tom Petty song or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I still have dreams about Tom. He, he, uh, he, he told me what to call my book. That's crazy. Now you said you had dreams about Tom Petty. Do any of the dreams 
clarify any of the stories or any of the incidents or do questions. they or questions <laughs> or do they answer questions that you've had that weren't be able to that you weren't able to answer before no the only well no they're just pretty general dreams but the one dream i do remember is like i said he he told me what to call my book tom petty and me and i woke up and i got up at three o'clock in the morning and i went to go daddy and um typed in tompettyme.com and it was available I clicked on it and mm-hmm. uh, started writing the next day and I had been I've been writing on other stories about my life with the who and Leonard Skinnerd and uh, you know a lot of other bands but when Tom passed away I I couldn't write about anything except about Tom and it's all from memory I didn't have any notes I didn't have any recordings well I have a few recordings but yeah, the dreams are pretty general, you know, just kind of hanging out at his house sometimes, um, which we did so often. And I would just bring a pile of records over, mostly new records. We would be sitting in the floor listening to um, to new, uh, I guess, yeah, CDs. And um, uh, matter of fact, he, I would take a record over there and and like um, Tommy Two-Tone. Remember Tommy Two-Tone? Oh, yeah. Sure. 8675309. I I took that record over to him. And he listened to that song. He said, I want these guys on my next tour. And he called his manager and said, book them. And he did the same thing with the Georgia Satellites. Um, I took a Georgia Satellites record over to his house. We were listening. And and, um, what what is that? Keep your hands to yourself, I think, the name of the song. And he totally flipped out, did the same thing. I want this band on my next tour. Yeah, the dreams, you know, they're nothing. They're just kind of dreams of hanging around with him. Because that's what we did. We hung yeah. out a lot together, and I was on the road with him a lot. But uh, the dreams are just kind of normal. They don't happen every every night. They happen about once a once a month. Yeah, but the real life is uh, kind of dreamy too, John. If you think about it, not everybody can say, "Yeah, I just went over to insert whatever rock star famous <laughs> person you want here, and I'm going to take over the new albums from this one and that one. I'm just going to sit down. We're just going to hang out and." You know, play them. I mean, that's part of the intimacy that's in the book that people might not get if they think they know the story. No, you're very, very right. I tried to give uh, a view of Tom Petty as as fans may have never seen him or knew how hard it was to get a record played. And you guys know that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted the fans to know how a band gets from zero to 100. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's and as you guys know, it's not easy. And serendipity played a big part in this role that I had with Tom Petty. Um, as a matter of fact, my whole life seems to be serendipity. Things just mm-hmm. seem to happen at the right time. I worked for MCA Records and got fired because I liked a kid named Johnny Cougar, who turned out to be John Mellencamp. And if they hadn't fired me, I would have never met Tom Petty know the story about me accidentally picking up his record when i got to abc records it's one of the things i want to talk to you about sure first before you got to that point when you were making that move uh what was your transition from radio because i know you from initially from memphis radio right you were right a number of years and uh into the record business and uh, when was that and what was your first record gig i believe it was in 1974 we started uh, playing rock music on an fm station in memphis that had 400,000 watts of power 
we were like flamethrowers and <clears throat> played whatever we, whatever we wanted to play. When the record guys started coming over because we were playing everything we wanted to play and selling records, I found out, you know, they make more money than a DJ did and they had an expense account. I kind of felt like it was a similar thing. I was turning listeners on to music, and now as a promotion guy, I'm turning radio stations on to music. So to me, it was basic, basically the same thing with better pay and an expense account. <laughs> <laughs> so let's fast forward a little bit, and let me ask you, you the way you tell it in there really begins to unfold the story of Tom Petty and you. And can you tell us who left that uh, white vinyl or the uh, white <laughs> label vinyl accidentally in the closet as they were leaving the closet that it fell out of so that you would discover it and then listen to it and <laughs> fall in love with a guy in a band that we all came to idolize, adore, and befriend. But before we'd all befriend him, you kind of befriended him. So who left us that white label vinyl? John? Well, it was either one or two guys. Um, there was a guy named Scott Jackson that was head of album promotion at ABC. Mm-hmm. I remember about a year before the time that I did pick up that record, we were at a Who concert, and he said, I got this record I want to send you. Yeah, I think you're going to like it. called Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He never sent it, so I just kind of forgot about that. And it could be John Schoenberger, who I think was before me as head of album promotion at ABC. Tough to tell because it had been around a while and had a pedigree, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, as, as of course you know, the, <clears throat> the album had been out for eight months when I happened to pick up a, a white album with nothing on it, nothing on the label, nothing on the vinyl. It's alright if you love It's alright if you don't I didn't have any idea who it was. But... Like you guys, I'm kind of a music nut, and I decided to skip lunch and sit down and listen to that record. Why? Thank God you did. That's all I want to say is thank you. Thank whatever force in the universe did it. Thank God you did. Thank you very much because, you know, I feel the same way about that. And when I sat down and listened to it, all of a sudden show bumps and goosebumps and hair standing up on my arm, and I didn't even know who these guys were. I just knew that it was something that was new and exciting and different than anything I'd heard in a long, long time. That's when I went to my boss's album, uh, Charlie Minor, who was one of the greatest promotion men ever, asked him who these guys were. He put the record on, and for about 10 seconds, he said, oh, that, that's a punk band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Hmm. And I, I just went, what do, you, what do you mean punk band? This is a rock and roll band. He said, no, no, no. Look at this guy. He pulls out the actual album. First time I'd seen it. And there's a guy with blonde stringy hair with bullets around his neck mm. and a black leather jacket on. And I didn't give a damn what was on the album cover. I just knew what I heard. And I listened twice to it, once on headphones the second time, and knew that that was something that was a game changer in, in, in rock and roll. He said, we're dropping him from the label. <laughs> and I just couldn't possibly believe that to be true. And I, I get I got down on my knees, I swear to you, and, and begged him, just give me six weeks. That's all I want. If I don't do anything, if I can't get any airplay, I'll quit. He said, you might get fired. I said, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. I really don't care. I know what I just heard. And uh, that was the start of, well, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't the, that wasn't the start. 
when my uh, my first gig at MCA Records, they, they sent Olivia Newton-John to Memphis, and they want me, wanted me to go to Nashville to see Scott Shannon at WMAK and play her play him the new single. In the corner of the bar that stands a jukebox With the best of country music Mm-hmm. And we were driving to Nashville and MCA, of course, and, and you guys know that record companies send out cassettes of mm-hmm. upcoming releases. And Olivia and I were sitting there listening and um, we would go, eh, mm, oh, that's pretty good. That's good. And then this reggae sounding song came on called Depot Street. I live on the west side by the county reservoir. We both looked at each other and said, "Damn, that's pretty good." She said, "Yeah, but but the, but the name of the band is stupid. What's the name? Mudcrutch." And I, I went, <laughs> "I went well, you know, I'm going to go to WKDF in Nashville see Ron Huntsman." I played it for him. He said, "John, we're going to add that record and start playing it." And I remember, it's so a big excited. deal. That's that's a big deal at that time because KDF was the rock station then that that what you wanted to be on in that region, oh, yeah. right? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And um, I remember calling my boss right after that and going, I got my first radio record ad, Depot Street by Mudcrutch. And he goes, you know what, John, that's not really a priority around here. It's a single. There's no album. Um, so, you know, go work on Olivia Newton-John's record. Forget about them. And I did. I forgot about Mudcrutch. I never knew who Mudcrutch was. And all I know is I like the record. And that kind of comes back in the, in my book, Tom Petty and Me, about you know, when I first met Tom on a positive note. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he threw me out of whiskey the first time I met him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the first meeting was pretty crazy. You got to, people, you got to read the story in the book. It's amazing. Jumping ahead w- during those six weeks when you were calling on radio stations to add Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers breakdown. You ca- you mentioned some of the stations you called, but Ray grew up here in Philly. I grew up in Denver, and I was wondering if you remember calling like KBPI or KZY in Denver, any of the rock stations in Denver, if you remember calling WMMR, WYSP here in Philly, and what kind of reception you got from the radio stations regarding Tom Petty as well at that time. Yeah, I just started calling any station that I knew, you know, when I worked at MCA, I was head of album promotion in Los Angeles, and, you know, so I had to call stations and go out and see them. So I just started calling stations, anybody that I knew, to ask them about Tom Petty, and a lot of them said, isn't that that punk band? I'm going, what the hell? Are these people See, it's hard to shake that stuff once you get it going, right, John? Oh, it's crazy. I mean, I ran across a few that said, yeah, we're playing to get some reaction to it. And I was in, I think it was in San Francisco, Bonnie Simmons. And in Boston, Willis DeMalt was getting some action. But what happened was, at the time, Charlie Minor was head of, of, was head of promotion, VP of promotion at ABC. Mm-hmm. And he told all the promotion guys, forget about this Tom Petty guy. Work uh, the uh, Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis single. And that was one of the other reasons why everybody just gave up on Tom Petty at ABC. 
you guys may know, maybe the listeners don't. Charlie Miner was a top 40 whiz and sure he was. loved it and record on top 40 radio. So it just, uh, after I, about a week of calling stations, I just decided to send out a new album to every FM station in America. Right. And I put a note on there and it says, listen to the record, forget about the fucking cover. <laughs> mm. And that caused some reaction. And I started getting phone calls. We, we listened and, good God, breakdowns, they hit a record. And so that was kind of the start of the whole thing when it started kicking in a little bit. But I still was on my, I think I had four weeks left at that time, according to Charlie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get it played. And um, I still met with a lot of resistance, especially from the consultants. They, they were killing me. They had 90 stations at uh, Burkhardt Abrams. Right. And there were two of those stations playing the record one in Atlanta with Drew Murray mm-hmm. WKLS my buddy Drew Murray yeah and um, are you guys editing this show absolutely it'll be edited and cleaned up completely okay, okay. Um, and the other person was Sky Daniels and there's a great story in my book about Sky who um, was a larger than life program director music director indeed and um, he was working at the Loop, WLUP in Chicago. And he told Lee Abrams, if you don't let me play Tom Petty, I am going to fucking quit. <laughs> and so he let him play Tom Petty. So there's two stations playing Tom Petty. Out he of wasn't night. losing him over a record, right? He wasn't going to no, lose him over no, a record. No. And then um, I think one of the guys one of the guys was in the meeting with Sky when he was you know, going, this guy, Tom Petty, is incredible. You got to you got to we got to add this record. And one of the consultants was there and he said, hey. and, and Sky freaking yep. went nuts. But anyway, um, Sky played a big role in, in the history of Tom Petty. Um, you built, I'll just say this. I watched as I read through the book and, you, and I didn't know all the details of how it all unfolded. You built an amazing army of supporters, a cadre of radio friends mm-hmm. that most of whom worked with Tom through the decades, through his whole rest of his life. And not many artists can work off of that initial success. It says a lot about Tom, but you set him up right. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, like I said, it was serendipity that started the whole thing by an album accidentally falling out of a closet. And, uh, but that was supposed to happen. And the way I look at it, 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 that was, that thing was supposed to happen. And it was told me to sit down and listen to it, mm-hmm. not knowing it had been out for eight months. That's crazy. Um, people ask me, what, what would have happened to Tom Petty if you hadn't met him? Because he was going to be dropped from the label. And, and I mean, there are many answers, but most answers are mm. nobody knows. <laughs> he, could have, he could have been signed by another label, probably. He could have gone back to Gainesville. And that's kind of the crazy thing about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure they would have been signed by another label. Like I said, nobody knows. It's hard to say, but I think you're right. I think they would. somebody else would have been keen on them. You also did something that I thought was fantastic, and it's something that we did in radio in the 90s, and that was the radio frequency tour with small bands. Do you remember playing smaller towns and the reception 
that Tom Petty got at that time. They got an incredible reception. We, um, you know, we were playing for like a dollar and three cents, like at 103 in Rock mm-hmm. 103 in Memphis. <clears throat> we played the concert for a dollar three, and all we wanted was 2,000 kids into an auditorium just to see this band because we knew, we just knew they would come out and go, holy crap. Who is this band and become fans? And that's what happened. We did about 20 of those shows. I don't think there was one show where people just didn't weren't, weren't coming out going, good God, this guy's good. This band is great. This guitar player is incredible. That was pretty much a, a, one of the turning points for um, Lee Abrams. Um, he's the one who came up came up with the idea of them playing for you know the low dough concerts as they call them. And uh, he went to about the third one and went, I'm going to add this record to all 90 of my stations. And that was like, boom. And all of a sudden, it just hit and hit big. It was like the fuse had been set with all the supporters, and then it got to that point, and the whole thing just... You know? it, it, it blew up. And a couple of things happened. Um, I called Bonnie Simmons, who had been playing you know, Tom Petty for eight months at KSAN in San Francisco, and asked her to start playing it again. And she said, John, I've been playing this damn record for eight months. How can I go back on breakdown? Give me something different. Give me something new. Mm. And, I, and I kind of was, she said, she, I, think, I remember her saying something live. And I went, bingo, live. Breakdown had never been recorded as a live record. I think they put out a couple of bootleg albums or something just to get interest in the band. And But, but Breakdown had never been recorded live. So I asked Tom to do a promotion with Charlie Kendall at KWST in Los Angeles. Tom wanted to record this live album on the radio. It was on the radio, and there was about 50 people in the audience or in the studio. And I told him I just need a kick-ass version like you've never done in your life of Breakdown. And he did it. And I think that's one of the things that really, when I sent that thing out, I sent it out on reel-to-reel tape, all of a sudden, that live recording was starting to get airplay. And then it started getting top 40 airplay, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. So, so those, both those things uh, pushed the album and the song to the charts. Now, why didn't you push American Girl as a single on that first album? as hard as you did Breakdown because mm-hmm. it's as good enough to be, I mean, a radio hit and it's been a staple in his live shows and it's still played pretty well on the radio yeah. even today. No, you're right. And that was a plan, actually. Well, Breakdown came out in 1976 as a single and didn't do anything. And then when we started getting FM play on Breakdown, Charlie Minor decided, well, maybe we should release it a second time in 77 and he did and it was released and the plan was to have American Girl to be the next single but ABC all of a sudden sees all this action going on they re-signed Tom and asked him for a second album and they heard Listen to Your Heart and flipped out and said let's put another album out and of course the first single off uh, the second album was supposed to be Listen to Your Heart but it contained the word cocaine and Tom said, I'm not changing the lyrics of that song because it was not champagne, it was cocaine. Right? <laughs> and But we had planned to put American Girl out, but it just never, it was like, all of a sudden, bam, there's a second album out. I think Breakdown went to 40 in the charts in uh, 
billboard. Well, I think that's a good case where the live performances made the song incredibly popular. Therefore, people would call and ask for it. And people just started playing it, kind of took on its own life with American Girl, even as the second record was unfolding. Part of the momentum that you guys built that, uh, you know, kind of leads to uh, an unexpected end. And I just want to ask you, John Scott, our guest here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And I got to ask you, John, mm-hmm. uh, was there any thought in your mind after that last L.A. show that you'd just seen him and them for the last time? I felt like, uh, well, there were rumors, you know, bands, this is the last concert. And... Um. Um, I kind of went to myself, well, maybe it is. And, um, but I, I had a feeling he was going to do um, a, a smaller venue show of Wildflowers the next year. And I did also, to be honest with you, I uh, was in Memphis and I saw him May 8th. Uh, he said he had some aches and pains and was having trouble hearing. And, but nothing, he said nothing to stop a show. But when I saw him go up on stage, I saw Steve Ferroni kind of pushing him up the stage which I went, that's weird. I didn't really think that was the last time I was going to see Tom Petty. A week later, he was gone. That's crazy. That, that was just like, you know. You're one of the first people I thought of when I heard about him, man, because you poured your heart and soul into you. helping them so much. And the story is there in the book, Tom Petty and Me. You know, yeah, yeah. Check it out. And also, you mentioned that kid from Seymour, Indiana. He wrote the foreword for the book. Uh, a good way to get into uh, into the story, and it's a great story of a friendship. If the backdrop wasn't the music business, it would still be a great story. And the way you tell it is really kind of cool too. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, John um, was gracious enough to describe what a promo man was in the mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, I think he did a pretty good job. John's a great writer. And, he's a, he's uh, a great he's writer. He's speaker. He is. And, and he's an artist, too. Yes, he is. <laughs> hey, uh, I do want to ask you uh, a question. And I want you to, you know, we've been, you've been real honest with us about so much. <laughs> But I wonder if you can tell me something that most people don't know about Tom Petty. He was one of the most humble guys in the world and one of the funniest guys in the world. And every time he, at the beginning, he made up a name for me. He called me Sizzling Memphis Natural John Scott. <laughs> and um, the, the album cover of the book is the um, one he signed for me. And he wrote that in there. And he would, you would go over to his house and he would open the door and go, ah, oh, it's sizzling Memphis natural John Scott. And I'd walk in the door and he gets right in your face and goes, I bet I can make you laugh. And I go, no, you can't. He go, okay. Rutabaga. And you just, you cracked up. You're like, Rutabaga? What the hell are you talking about? But he was just a funny guy and, um, you know, he, uh, he he remembered people, for the most part, that helped him on the way up. And a lot of artists don't do that. He helped me out in many different ways, different occasions. A flood in my house, and mm-hmm. I moved in with him. That was from, wild to read about. Yeah, and then I moved to Hawaii and went through a hurricane, and all of a sudden, and nobody in Kauai, the island of Kauai, had a, very few people had a generator because they weren't available. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I got to notice that there's a generator waiting at FedEx for me to pick up from Tom Petty. 
But you know the the a friend the other... will bail you out of jail. A real friend will send you a generator in a shitstorm. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, the other thing I, I often get in my and people writing me, uh, they go. I love the faxes that he wrote. You two guys wrote, and yeah. it's kind of hard to believe a guy like Tom Petty standing in front of a fax machine, <laughs> writing something silly and stupid, and sending it to me. That's great. And I saved all the faxes. I still have them on thermal paper, paper, wrapped up pretty good. The other thing is, he, you know, if he if he liked an idea and it made sense, he would do it. And there's right. several instances in my book where. I talked him into having a 40 or 40 rock programmers over to his house to listen to Southern accents. But that was the other thing. He, he, you know, if he believed in you and, and thought you had good ideas, he would go along for the most part. Um, I think until he got bigger <laughs> in the business, but um, he was just a Southern boy and had this dream, like, you know, like we all did probably, Growing up, and I, I, I knew I wanted to be be a DJ at ten. And around that time, when he was ten, he knew he wanted to be a rock singer because he saw Elvis. He met Elvis Presley. Right. And my follow up question: Tell me something most people don't know about John Scott. <laughs> um, wow, that's an interesting question. Well, um, I was a DJ in Memphis uh, on an FM station that played what we wanted to play. And I used to do silly, goofy things sometimes at night because of maybe some outside influences that went into my mouth. Or yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I had to stay in touch with my with my audience because you know my audience were out there stoned as hell. That's and awesome. just right. starting to you know get FM radios. Work and research. It was work, work research. It's right. And you know we started playing things that you know nobody else in town was even coming close to playing. You know, as you know, you start to you get have a request line, and you start to get to know people when they call. And one night, a guy called me and said that had called. He's been he'd called for a year at least requesting songs, and he said, you know. I have a feeling you smoke pot. I said, okay. He said, well, why don't you come over and smoke a joint with my with my girlfriend? And, and I, we live a few blocks from the station. And I said, well, what's your address? I gave He gave it to me. And <clears throat> the next night, about 11 o'clock, I put on Alice's Restaurant and jumped in my car, went to his apartment, knocked on the door. He said, who's there? I said, John Scott. He said, it can't be. You're on the air. I went, well, you told me to come over here and do that. <laughs> and he kind of opened the door and went, good God, you're John Scott. So he smoked. Yeah. And went, <laughs> you went back. <laughs> we, well, it, it gets better. I mean, I went, I, I, we spoke to Joint. I, I knew I still had, you know, some time left on the record. And I got back to the station. I had locked myself out of the station. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. And Scott on the imbalance history of rock and roll. And so I get in my car and I hear, ch -ch 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 -ch, which just means the record is over. <laughs> so much good stuff with John Scott on the podcast this week. His book, Tom Petty and Me, has been out for a while. And we'll find out more about that and other things and talk about his next book next on the imbalance history of rock and roll. 
when you go in the crooked eye and you look at the board, you're always going to find something that makes you feel right. Right there in the heart of Hapro at York Road in Montgomery, go see the gang at Crooked Eye. It's all good, and it's all happening at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. The fact that Crooked Eye has survived the pandemic and done a great job staying open and taking all of the necessary precautions to keep everybody safe is a wonderful thing. And I think it's a testament to not only their business, but who they are as people. Well, we raise our pints to you, and now they're pouring at Jamie's House of Music in Lansdowne. That's not too far from you in Delaware County, right? That is true. It's right down the street, literally about two and a half, three miles from my pad. So live well, music and Crooked Eye near me, too. Jamie's House of Music does great work with live music, and they never had somebody there pouring, and now the Crooked Eye crew is there bringing all those delicious brews from Hapro. So Delaware County, come and check out Crooked Eye and the great tunes at Jamie's House of Music. All the details about all this on CrookedEyeBrewery.com, their website, and follow them on Facebook, too. Whenever you need a tasty pint, remember, Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hello, my partner in crime, Marcus Goldman. I'm Ray Koob on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And our guest this week is the author of Tom Petty and Me. And you, you should have put in so many other adventures as your subtitle. Other than your unique relationship with Tom Petty, which is chronicled well in the book, what are your favorite artists that you enjoyed helping to break? Oh, boy. Um, Wishbone Ash, Golden Earring, ZZ Top for sure. We, uh, we we started playing ZZ Top's record at the station in Memphis, probably before anybody else, because they were right down our alley. We we're in Memphis, and they're, you know, a rock and roll blues band. Actually, the first gig they played outside of Texas was in Memphis and sold out to about 2,000 people. They were like, what the hell? 
But um, the manager used to call me, Bill Ham. He used to call me all the time, about once a week. So he would call and say, um, "Hey John, how's my band doing?" And I was kind of kidding around with him. I said, "What band are you talking about, Bill?" He said, "Oh, come on, John. <laughs> you know the band." I said, "You mean that little old band from Texas?" And he said, "Can I use that?" I went, "Use what?" That what you just said. That little old band from Texas. Sure, I don't care. That's how that term came about. But um, ZZ, yeah, ZZ Top, one of my favorite bands in the world. John Mellencamp, of course, was another one. Although I I played him. I played him when he was Johnny Cougar at uh, my college station. And I remember that album, yeah. And I remember um, he came out as John Cougar a couple years later. And this is all, you know, my timeline plugged into your book's timeline. Right. And you're telling the story, and I'm sitting there, oh, I remember that. And I remember uh, him taking his name back, basically. And one of the great things it was for him as an artist. Yeah. And you're, he hated you're that name. Yeah, well, because he got stuck on him, you know? He didn't have a choice. It was either going to be Johnny Puma or Johnny Cougar. Get out. And his manager... That's one of the reasons I really got into the record because the president of the record company, I, you know, tossed the album into the trash can when first he said, "Who would play a, a damn record by somebody named Johnny Cougar? What a stupid name!" I bet his manager uh, Tony DeFreeze made that up. And when I heard Tony DeFreeze, I go back to mm. David Bowie. That's another artist that our station, along with WMMS in Cleveland, helped break. I did a one-hour interview with. David Bowie before right before the Ziggy Stardust album came out. Uh, so the interview was um, was incredible. And matter of fact, this, it was supposed to be the first, Memphis was supposed to be the first stop on the tour of Ziggy Stardust tour. Ziggy played guitar, jamming good with Wed and Gilly and the spiders from Mars. And uh, it ended up being Cleveland because of logistically, MMS had started playing the record. After us, Billy Bass. After us, John Corman. <laughs> anyway, um, second stop on his tour was Memphis. After the interview, a week later, a package arrived and it said D. Jones. And it was at some address in London. And I opened it up and it was Ziggy Stardust. So I actually had the first copy of Ziggy Stardust in America. Did you run right to the station and play it? Oh, I was at the station when it, when when I got it. Oh, are you kidding me? I remember, you remember um, they used to have um, Record World used to have uh, Flashmaker of the Week or what are your top ten albums? Right. And I put Ziggy Stardust on every one of them. I, don't, I put ten times Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> and people, were going, where the hell did you get that record? And I said, D. Jones sent it to me. <laughs> his real name David Jones yeah. right when you get it from the artist they can't send you a cease and desist for being a month early right That's amazing. <laughs> no exactly and uh, it used to bug the hell out of a lot of people that we had that album 
and nobody else did. Is the interview you had with David Bowie available online at the moment? And if so, where can people find it? There's a two-minute clip on YouTube. And if you Google David Bowie Memphis 1972, or David Bowie 1972. And I lost my copy of the tape in a, in a flood. And there's one other guy who has a copy of the tape and he won't make, make a copy for me. And I'm about to shoot the guy. Um, <laughs> he, he discovered it as he was cleaning out a closet of an A&R guy at RCA Records. We sent the A&R guy a tape of the interview. So I am, I'm trying to get this freaking tape from this guy. So... <laughs> There's only a two-minute version up there, but he explains on the two-minute version about Ziggy Stardust being the last band on Earth. Yeah, I got to meet him. He came, he came to our house after the after the show. He played two, <laughs> show, he played two shows. I think one at seven, oh, one at nine. Yeah. He, he knocked on the door, and his wife was with him. And I really couldn't tell which one was David Bowie. <laughs> swear to God. They, look, they looked exactly like each other. So I had a, I had a problem going, uh, I didn't want to say which one of you are David Bowie, but, but. but I just said, hey, guys, come on in. And then we kind of figured it out which one was David Bowie. Yeah. In this time period you're talking about, radio was a different beast than it is today for sure. And that's not you know taking any chops at radio or anything. It's just in the, there was all kinds of that kind of you know direct interaction with people because it was early on for everybody. Everybody was finding their way, including this new FM radio business that liked to rock a bit. You guys had it going on down there, and you had it wired. Well, we we did. And you were in the middle of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, all of us, you got two, both of you two guys, we were in music, the music business at a time like no other in my life. And I don't think there'll ever be a time Mm-mm. where you, you got a Crosby, Stills and Nash, Jackson Brown and a Linda Ronstadt and they loved their craft and they played their music and they wanted it to be heard. we went through is something like i said i don't think it'll ever happen again we went through a period of music that we put notches on the rock and roll tree that was the exciting part of being in the business at that time mm-hmm. one of the people on the radio side of the business in those days is a name that i know you know very well because he was also integral to what was going on with tom petty and I'm talking about a man who I intersected with through his time at WMMR in Philadelphia, the one and only Charlie Kendall. And his story, intersecting with your story in your book, he's part of the unholy trinity, right? The, the people who you really know. made things happen for you. Oh, he absolutely was. And again, serendipity happened. All of a sudden, Charlie Kendall is coming to Los Angeles. 
And we've known, I've known Charlie for quite some time. Matter of fact, he used to listen to me on the radio when he lived in Clarksville, Mississippi. Wow. And um, he came to town and, and right around the same time that I discovered this album and I took it to his house and he went, good God almighty, who are these guys? This is one of the best effing records I've heard in years. I was like, thank God somebody heard what I heard. And he right. said, are, are they any good live? I went, Charlie, I just picked up this record three days, three days ago by accident. I have no idea if they're any good live, but I know they're opening for Blondie at the Whiskey this coming Saturday night. And he went, hell yeah, we're going. I went, yeah, you're mm. right about that. We got to the Whiskey. He came on at seven, opening band for Blondie. I think he opened with uh, a Chuck Berry song and that right away we looked at each other like, holy crap. And then he went into breakdown and Charlie said, I'm going to add this record on Monday morning and play it once an hour, every hour. It's that good. As a promotion guy, you're like, you know, I got that ad in my back pocket. I am one happy guy. And the show ended. There was no, no uh, encore. It was, you know, they left the stage. They killed us. I mean, they absolutely just knocked us, knocked us over. I'd never seen anything like Mike Campbell in a long, long, long time. And the rest of the band was just equally as good. But that guy singing Tom Petty, he had strapped on that flying V guitar, man. And I, I knew he was really special. And uh, after the show, I said, I, I want to meet this guy. And because <laughs> I, knew, I knew in my mind, I just, I'd heard the record. And now I've seen the, the record on stage. I went upstairs and introduced myself as head of, I'm the new head of album promotion, ABC Records. And he said, I don't give a damn who you are is get the F out of here because we hate ABC records. And I'm kind of blown back a little bit because I said, well, I really like your record a lot. And he said, well, I don't care. Hmm. ABC's dropping us. And I I went, well, have you ever heard your record on the radio? And he went, no. In Los Angeles, he went, no. I said, you're going to hear it once an hour, every hour, new station in town called KWST. That was Charlie Kendall. Right. Charlie did what he said. He started Monday morning. He started playing it once an hour, every hour. Wednesday, I get a call from his manager, Tom's manager, Tony Dimitrios, and said, you've really pissed off my artist. Told him you're going to break his career. Well, let me back up a little bit. After Tom told me to get out of there, I turned to him and said, "Um, Tom, I'm going to break your career wide open. I don't even know that I could, of course, but I just said it. And he went, oh, my God, get the fuck out of here. You're another nut job from ABC Records. You think they had track record or something on that, though? Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, he said, just get out of here. And he told his roadie to take me and Charlie and go out the back door of the whiskey. Right before I left, I turned around and I said, Tom Petty, my name is John Scott. Every time you hear your record on the radio, you're going to think about me. And don't you ever forget it. <laughs> and then a barrage of F-bombs started flying at that point. <laughs> Because I knew what was going to happen. Charlie Kendall knew what was going to happen. And that was really the start of the whole thing. That's crazy. Yeah, because in that point, you know, I'm getting dropped. I'm not getting any support and this and that. You show up, you say a few things, you take care of business. Yeah. And the next thing you know, they're selling records, which is what it's all about when you think about it. All the other stuff is designed to work around that. And you got the mission covered there in your market, but it also started to happen elsewhere. Yeah. The irony of all of this, mm-hmm. your lifelong friendship with Tom personally and all your great stories that are in the book is that it started with a fuck you and get out, you know? And <laughs> I, when yeah, I read that, I, I'm sitting here laughing. My girlfriend's like, what is going on? I go, when I tell you, you won't believe it. 
Yeah. yeah. And a week later on Friday, I get a my assistant comes in and said, Tom Petty's on the phone. And I'm kind of going, oh, God, which way is this going to go? And I'm going to get cursed out again. And I picked up the phone and Southern voice. He said, John, it's Tom Petty. And I just want to know, are you serious about what you're saying? Because my friends are telling me they're hearing my record on the radio. I said, Tom, I'm going to break your career wide open. He said, I want to meet you. I said, when? He said, can you come over tonight? I've jotted, I've jotted that address down and flew over there That's to meet crazy. Tom Petty. Knocked on the door, opened the door, his big Confederate flag, which he knew was a mistake later. All of a sudden, it was kind of a different story here, you know, of who I was, who he was. And we went outside and smoked a joint, and I told him a little bit about, about my career. And then I asked him, have you been in any other bands? He said, yeah, you've never heard of them. They're called Mud Crutch. And I went, Depot Street? <laughs> and he looked at me like, how the hell do you know Depot Street? And at that moment, it, was, it seemed like it was a, like 30 seconds for sure. But it felt like it was a moment in time that we both looked at each other and said, you're, he says, you're going to break my career. And you're telling me, you know, Depot Street, what the hell's going on? And that's when serendipity just went flying through yes, the floor once again. Yes, sir. And wow. uh, I mean, what, the are universe. The odds, what, what are the odds of me knowing Mudcrutch Depot Street? Then I went inside. He said, they, I said, do you have anything I can hear? He, he said, well, I've got something that we're working on. He played me um, listen to her heart. And I, I think I made him play it five, six times in a row because it was so good. And that's one of the reasons I went back to ABC going, you won't believe the stuff he's got coming out. The, uh, the single peaked at 40 in the top 40 charts, and and they had an album under the, ready to go. So that's what happened with them. That's why American Girl, like I said, wasn't ever released. That's huge. It should have been. It would have been a hit record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No doubt in my mind. Yeah, that was pretty funny about Depot Street. Um yeah, we bonded for life that night. That's an amazing bonding story. It's and it's a heartwarming uh, bonding story too because it started out so messy and him <laughs> being very uh, jaded negatively towards the record industry and the people in the record industry, and you kind of flipped that around and you earned his trust, which was probably very difficult to do for somebody in the record business at that time. Oh, yeah. You know what that's like. It's like, you know, you got to really earn your your medals there to get close to a band. Mm-hmm. But once they like you, you know, it's uh, forever. I worked in Atlanta for MCA mm-hmm. and when Leonard Skinner put out Freebird and um, we bonded. And those guys were a tough, scrappy bunch of boys. Oh, yeah. Who would fight anybody at any time. Mm-hmm. But you know what it's like in your bond with a band. It's the greatest, one of the greatest feelings in the world. And they go ahead and make it. Yes, I agree. Zero records, but 80 million. Uh huh. Jumping ahead, I've had the pleasure of seeing Tom Petty live many times since the 80s. I saw him at Red Rocks. I grew up in Colorado. I saw the Bob Dylan Tom Petty tour. And then in the 90s, I saw the Fiddler's Green uh, Replacements Tom Petty tour. And I was wondering how they chose the replacements to go on tour with them. And before you answer that, later that night, they played a small club called Rock Island where they just came up on stage with instruments and let the crowd shout out 
requests that weren't replacement songs or Tom Petty songs, and they played them live for the people that night just out of the blue. But how did they choose the replacements to go on tour with them? That's one answer I don't have. Uh, I don't have the answer to. I, I, I don't remember that. Also, the story of Full Moon Fever and the record rep jumping on the table screaming at everybody else is the one of the wildest stories in the book it is <laughs> couldn't I, believe it i don't know if you guys know john high but i've heard uh, of him he was a man that if he believed in something like me he would go to the wall well mca records did not want to release full moon fever because they said there was no hits on it what mm-hmm. and i i i, I went I heard, tom called me said you want to hear my new record i went over there and I turned and looked at him. I said, this is one of the best records you've ever done in your lifetime. And he said, yeah, well, we got a problem. MCA wants us to go back in the studio. They said there's no hits on this record. Uh, I, I was in disbelief. John Hyatt just come to work for MCA as head of album promotion. And, and Tom asked me, you work for MCA. Do you know anybody over there that you might can help us? And John had been bugging me to meet Tom. And I called him up and said, you want to meet Tom Petty? Let's go tomorrow night, listen to his new record. And he did the same thing as I did. He turned around and said, God almighty, that's one of the greatest albums you, I, you've, you've ever done, Tom. And, wow. he, and he went to, well, we got a problem, John. Your record company doesn't want to put it out. And the next day, John High, in a conference meeting, gets up on the table and starts jumping up and down. Who the hell doesn't want to put this Tom Petty right? Who's the guy here at MCA that's stopping the release of this record? And he was jumping up and down, screaming. I mean, maybe two weeks later, they went, okay, the album's coming out. And again, one of those things is like, John High hadn't been there. Would Full Moon Fever come out? Well, maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. It's, it's just it's a crazy story. <laughs> it would have turned into a bidding war, John. You hear, you hear uh, free falling and, <laughs> you know, uh, running down a dream. And, oh, my God, <sighs> you know, one of the greatest albums that he'd ever done. Yep. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. somebody, somebody who didn't have a garden angel but was also caught up in all these changes with abc and mca taking ownership and all that was steely dan didn't you cross roads with them too oh yeah i crossed roads with steely dan i was on the road with tom petty i, I love being on the road with tom petty i really had nothing else in my mind at that time but I got a call from Charlie Minor saying, you got to get back here. <clears throat> the president wants you to listen to a new record. But before you get here, I just want to tell you, we won't get mad if you can't get it played. And as a promotion guy, I've never heard that before in my life. Wow. Up on the hill, people never stand. They just don't care. I said, why? He said, well, it's long and jazzy. And that was like, you know, red flag to me, long and jazzy, a rock band. And um, I went back to um, L.A. And, it, and to put even more pressure on me, they played me, had the, they had the producer in the room with me and the president and Charlie Minor wanting to get my opinion on this record. And so the minute I heard uh, they call Alabama the Crimson Tide, call me Deacon Blues, I lost it. I went, this, this record is a fucking game changer.
you had another one of those moments, right? Another one of those moments in, in history that, um, and we, at, you know, at that point, I was going, put, put, can we put blue vinyl out for... Digging blue, you were thinking promo items already. I'm thinking digging blues, yeah. I'm a sucker for um, colored vinyl. But I, I, I do have guys that recognize You know that. about the collectability of it, so of Yes, course. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of sure. course. I went back to the Dave Mason tie-dye album, but... I got I got friends at record stores that go, man, people come in asking for that blue vinyl. I can't imagine. And that was the time to be in that catbird seat, so to speak, don't you think? Oh, my God, yes. I mean, you know, when you know you just helped break a band that was about to be dropped from the label, and then you hear a record like Asia, one of the most incredibly produced albums there is. Mm -hmm. They're a masterpiece, I think. It's a masterpiece. And we, um, we had... In every many cities, we set up um, listening parties at um, recording studios. And when you hear the record in a recording studio, you really get the, you know, the essence of that album. And within, I think, five weeks, it's probably the most added record in America. But uh, I never met Steely Dan either. Never met either of them. Oh, never. that's so fun. Well, I, probably because I wanted to go back out with Tom Betty and went back on the road. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, Ladies uh, and gentlemen, he is our guest. He is John Scott, the <laughs> author of Tom Petty and Me, the guest on the road and at home many times of Tom and, and his family. And uh, so many great stories, so much great rock and roll, and you've lived it all. And, and wow, we're still here, John. Buddy, we're going to keep being here, too. We got, you know, we got to... We got to stick around. I'm working on my second book, um, which was going to be my first book, but it's... Well, tell us more about that. Well, um... um, It's our job to ask, you know. You ever heard of of hanging out with the Who? Uh, Driving cars into a swimming pool? Yeah. Yeah? Uh, Yeah. Um, I know you were at a lot of that shit. I know you were at a lot of that shit. Oh, my God. I've never seen anything anything like a band like the Who, and Keith Moon especially. I had to work his solo album, which was god awful, terrible. But I've got some stories about oh my. Keith Marcus. Keith. Marcus, get the, re- the release date for the book when we find out. Just put John on the schedule, and we'll yes. have you back to talk about. I've got all pictures that. you would not believe. Yes, guys. I want the yes. pictures. I want the video. <laughs> oh, the pictures of Keith Moon. Oh my god, that's crazy. Uh, so anyway, that's what I'm doing. Working my second book, and that's uh, great. And I hope it gets out because, um, you know, I, when I when I wrote Tom Petty and Me, I, I I didn't care if it sold one copy or a million because I wanted just to get my story out for my grandkids and for my daughter and my wife and yeah, I just wanted my story out, and it's it's done really well. I'm really happy about that. It's still selling. Kids buy it and they want me to personalize it to their mom or dad, who turned them on to Tom Petty when they were ten years old. And so that means to me that he, you know, he Tom Petty's generation, generational. He'll be played 150 years from now because there was nobody like him. He was so unique, the genius songwriter. I can't even think of one song that I, I, that I didn't like. Maybe one on Echo, but um, he was, yeah, he was a musical genius, and he he knew he loved British music. I think Roger McGuinn, when he first heard American Girl, said, "Did I write that song?" And uh, um, Tom wrote Breakdown and American Girl on July 4th, 1976. And he said, that was a pretty damn good day. And I said, no shit, man. Are you kidding me? You're two freaking masterpieces in one day. Wow. But, uh, wow. 
you know. Well, thanks for sharing so much with us about your friend Tom, and a guy who we've been lucky enough to meet a couple times for me. And it's always great to get the insight that you give in the book for the fans. And yeah. really, unfortunately, you know, the timing way it all worked out. But uh, we'll look forward to having you back on the next book. There you we're go. Who fans? We love them. And uh, we wish you nothing but the best. Stay safe, my friend. Yeah. You know, it's been so much fun talking with you guys because you, you, you've you been in the business for so long and you know the stories and you know how it happens. And um, when you talk to people like you guys, it's really a pleasure because I know you guys experienced a lot of what I'm talking about. I just want to say thanks again, John. It was really fun speaking with you as well. And we really, I really enjoyed reading the book. It's a fantastic read all the way through. Thank you. It's uh, TomPettyandMe.com. I sign every book. I personalize every book. And it's also available on Kindle and now in an audio version that I just did. So, uh, and I had fun with that. It was tough, but I had fun doing an audio version of it. Awesome. But anyway... There you go. That's where you find it, TomPettyMe.com. Man, a lot of stories, a lot of really fun stuff hanging out with John Scott today on this episode of The Imbalance, History of Rock and Roll. Oh, what a fun, fun conversation. And there's so much more to it. I highly recommend you read the book. It really gives you a chance to see how great Tom Petty's sense of humor was and what a wonderful person he truly was. A gentleman. And John, very atypical for him, talking a little bit out of school, telling us some other stories and things that aren't in the book, and talking about some other artists too. The one and only John Scott on this episode of the podcast. Uh, Chime in with your feedback and what you think about what's going on when it comes to our little podcast. You can do that on email. Hit us up at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on social media, Facebook, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. You can also find us on Twitter at Imbalanced Histo or on Instagram, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And we look forward to uh, interacting with you because... Rock and roll and music are interactive. We love interacting. Where we go next time, no one really knows till we crack the mic in the Dark Doc Studios. So until we do just that, I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. Signing off for this imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 